Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Kayon, what are you doing? I found this chili in the break room fridge, and I had to heat it up and try some. You made this, right? Yes, it's really good. You're eating it right out of my container, and you're dipping your spoon back in. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that a is that a problem? If you have a disease, I could get it. Well, now that you mention it, I do have post-treatment monkey-born Winfield-Larkin-Hines disorder. What's that? It's an incompletely understood disease characterized by sleep loss, brain fog, neck aches, intense itching, the sensation that somebody suddenly left the room, a compulsive need to associate numbers with colors, slurred speech, blurry vision, mood swings, and short-term memory loss. What if I get it? What if you get what? Why should I care? That shirt looks really nice on you. I can't believe you exposed me to this. I probably didn't. I mean, the only time that biomarkers turn up in saliva is in lions and New Guinea tribal chieftains. I got it from eating squirrel brains. Hey, you are really itching a lot. I totally have post-treatment monkey-born Winfield-Larkin-Hines disorder. Either that, or it's just the you know power of suggestion. No, I'm having a cascade of those symptoms. Yeah, but I made the whole thing up, so... I hate you. Today on the show, what happens when there isn't scientific consensus on whether a disease exists? And now he's being treated for applesauce deficit disorder, Colin McEnroe. Obviously, we're joking a little bit about this in the intro, but for a lot of people, this is really serious. A lot of people feel as though they have a disease that their doctor doesn't even acknowledge the existence of. And some of these are are pretty familiar names to you, Uh, things like fibromyalgia, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, some of those disorders are gaining chronic Lyme is another enormous battleground not so much that Lyme disease doesn't exist but that um, post-treatment with no uh, manifestation of the spirochete that causes it they can still have symptoms Uh, sort of modern medicine doesn't really believe that that's true or that that's possible Um, and then we started discovering maybe less some less well-known diseases as we were kind of getting ready for the show Uh, Joni Mitchell as I mentioned in the earlier intro uh, has something or says she has something called Morgellons disease, which is a skin decision, uh, condition in which uh, well, the patients experience really kind of bizarre um, skin problems. I, I don't even want to go into the details right this second. But once again, no real scientific consensus that that's true. Um, more likely diagnosis is going to be something like psychotic parasitosis or something that is a, essentially a delusional uh, problem that you're having. You're going to hear about a condition called misophonia uh, right now, that which is a heightened sensitivity uh, to certain kinds of sounds. And what we wanted to do is have to do a show about, well, who gets to decide? Um, it, it's kind of like, who are you going to believe, your doctor or your own lying body? Uh, so uh, we have gathered together some people who really have thought a lot about this. Uh, with me in studio, Gary Greenberg, no stranger to our show, a psychotherapist in Connecticut and the author of The Book of Woe. Uh, Baron Lerner is joining us from studios in New York City, NPR's studios in New York City, a professor of medicine and population health at NYU Langone Medical Center and a medical historian and the author of The Good Doctor, A Father, A Son, and the Evolution of Medical Ethics. And a little bit later, we'll talk to Ellen Clayton. She's a professor of pediatrics and law, co-founder of the Center 
Center for Biomedical Ethics uh, and Society at Vanderbilt University. She's also on the Institute of Medicine Council. So um, I- I'm going to begin with you, Gary, and, and, and work uh, Baron Lerner into this pretty quickly. So, um, so imagine that I am having some symptoms that are consistent with, let's pick one of those. These are kind of consistent with fibromyalgia. Um, and, uh, or, but it could be any of these things. And and I could go to one doctor who would say, yeah, you know, that seems like fibromyalgia. Here's what we know about it. Here's what we don't know about it. Here's what we can do about it, which is not very much. I might go to another doctor who would say, you know, I don't, you know, you, your friends told you you had fibromyalgia. I don't really even believe that that's a real disease. Uh, this may be a physical manifestation of some psychological disturbances you're having. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. I don't really believe in fibromyalgia, so I'm in no position to treat you for it. So, I mean, this is a physical condition. It's a manifestation of symptoms within the body. Um, who, who gets to decide? I mean, wh- how can there be that amount of disagreement? Uh, why can there be th- that amount of disagreement? And, and, and how does it ever get resolved if it does? Well, the people that get to decide generally are doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, these days, usually committees of doctors. So many diseases are created um, by committee, and we know what creations of committee are like. They can be very bulky and awkward and not very satisfying. Um, and how, how they decide, you know, in some ways it's like anthropology. You have to sort people. You have to listen to them and find out what their symptoms are and see if those symptoms group together in a way that isn't already explained by another disease. And people who have conditions like fibromyalgia don't fit into an existing disease category. So you start with this recognition that they don't fit into an existing disease category, and yet there's more than one of them. There's a group of people reporting a group of symptoms that don't fit in. And so you carve out another disease category, and you name it, fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, maybe you start to look for biological markers. Uh, That would be one thing that people do. But as we know, in many of these cases, there aren't any. Um, So, uh, Baron Lerner, Gary's making it sound like there's almost – a way in which some syndromes are socially constructed. They Maybe that's not a bad thing, that um, if enough people say consistently that they all have this thing uh, and it all sounds kind of similar, even if there isn't really kind of a, a strict acceptable, acceptable group of biomarkers that have been found so far, one way of thinking about this is, well, if we really study the disease, disease even more, identify the patients, get them together, locate them, look at them, get research universities involved, we'll understand it. We'll find the biomarkers. We'll understand what this disease is. Is that an empirically satisfying way for medicine to go about this problem? Well, from my doctor hat, uh, most of my doctor colleagues wouldn't like that very much. From my historian hat, I'm pretty comfortable with it. Um, I, I think the term social construction, which has come over around the last few decades, has actually been a helpful way to try to understand the ways in which, uh, as Gary said, diseases begin to exist that are not with a clear scientific basis. So if you have something like pneumonia and you have pus in your lungs and uh, everybody agrees that that's a real disease, but then when people come in your office with, again, these vague constellation of symptoms, and there's a lot of them, uh, you don't want to say just because we can't find the cause right away, it doesn't exist. That's like the worst thing to say, and it's all in your head. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say. So we do, if there's enough people like this, begin to socially construct and say we've identified a group of people. We don't exactly know what it is. We're going to try to name it and try to study it. 
So I, I want to uh, get both of you talking about this, but so it seems to me, as the, the untutored person in this conversation, that there's two potential pitfalls, at least two potential pitfalls here. One of them is that what you're describing right now almost kind of catapults us back into a pre-germ model way of thinking about medicine and into a sort of a, a sense of, well, if a lot of people say that they have something in the absence uh, of actual scientific evidence that that something exists, we still have to acknowledge its existence. To me, or to some people, let's not say to me, um, I won't take responsibility for this particular, to some people that's, well, we're almost like teetering on the edge of almost kind of a superstitious understanding of things. I mean, just because of a lot of people say things that they have something, and now with the internet, people can communicate with each other all the time and kind of arrive at this consensus. Well, now that you mention it, my foot tingles too at the same time that the right side uh, of my mouth droops. You know, I've got that thing too. So, you know, the concern would be we have sort of this folk way understanding of this problem uh, that exists independently of science. Uh, so, Gary, why isn't that a bad thing? Well, actually, the scientific understanding is a folk understanding. I mean, you have to the, to go back to this notion about germs and or the absence of germs. And when germs are absent, then we have a problem. The germ theory of disease is what revolutionized medicine and gave us the expectation that when there's a problem, when we suffer, we're going to find the biological cause for it. That's new. That came about in the middle of the 19th century. So for thousands of years, suffering wasn't understood that way. And that model, that idea of what a, really, uh, what a disease really is, has dominated our thinking for the last 150 years. But that doesn't mean it's the only scientific way to validate or understand uh, suffering. But, but Barry Lerner, how do we differentiate between sort of a kind of a legitimate folk understanding of a problem? I'm using folk with quotation marks around it. I mean, a, a lot of people kind of communicating with one another and maybe figuring it out they're all having the same kinds of symptoms, whether science has grouped those symptoms together into a single disorder or not. They're starting to figure that out. Uh, and maybe science needs to catch up with that. Um, how do we differentiate that potentially legitimate process from mass hysteria, from people... I mean, a lot of people look at something like Morgellon and say, well, you know, it's just it's not it's a lot of people communicating about sort of a delusion that they're all having and and probably also kind of triggering by suggestion in yet more people. Um, how do you how do you make a, a demarcation between those two things? Well, I think you bring as much science as you can to bear on these situations. So uh, for things like chronic Lyme and chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia now have been studied extensively by scientists. Um, they are grouping people together. They're grouping symptoms together. And, and again, when you find replicability, consistency, um, and, and various uh, a, a sort of objective things you can put your hat on, I, I think it builds toward legitimacy. Um, but you're you're entirely right. You you could get all these things in a sense from a group hysteria on the internet, and everybody starts saying they have the same thing. So that that's something I think we're always cautious about. Um, but the the ones that I think really exist are, are, have have a durability to them. I, I mean, I've been seeing patients for 30 years who come in with pain and fatigue, and we're still struggling with what exactly they have, but there's clearly something there. 
Okay, now let's let me bring up the other pitfall. And Gary, I'm going to throw a fastball right down your pipeline on this one. Um, the the other so there's two groups groups of people who can benefit from the identification of a disease. One of them are the people who have the disease. Like if okay, if we decided it's a disease, we start doing researching cures and treatments and stuff like that. That's really good for me if I, if I have that disease. The other group of people who for whom it's potentially good are clinicians, um, because right now we could decide that there's something called Greenberg Lerner syndrome uh, and and, and that we could even figure out what the symptoms are, and a bunch of people have it. But the truth is, you probably couldn't get an insurance reimbursement for treatment. There isn't any pharmaceutical company with skin in the game right now uh, for some kind of drug to, cre- to treat Greenberg-Lerner syndrome. The day w- when the day comes that it really is accepted as a diagnosis, then there's sort of a whole bunch of people who theoretically benefit. Starting with your clinician, I mean, it's much more reassuring if Baron Lerner's patients can hear him say, oh, yeah, I know what you got. You got Greenberg-Lerner syndrome. Not only that, I know what drug works for it. Um, plus the pharmaceutical companies, they're happy. So in a, in a way, the other beneficiary of this process, if we're going to agree that diseases can come about by this kind of somewhat scientifically backed consensus, would be all of those people, the people delivering services. Why shouldn't we be worried about the, uh, that idea that these socially constructed diseases that don't exist wind up basically being, you know, sort of troughs for a lot of people to eat out of? Well, I think we should be worried about it. And I think that um, what we have to understand is that the disease label is a very powerful way to secure social resources. That's really what disease does for us when you, when you take a kind of suffering and say, okay, that's a disease. You open up a treasure trove, and some of it is for treatment, some of it's for research, some of it's for office visits, and a lot of it is for pharmaceutical companies. I mean, a disease under capitalism, a disease is a market, and so a disease label becomes a very valuable commodity. Um, I want to mention as we go along here, uh, our number, if you want to call in, nobody's going to diagnose you, but uh, if you have something you want to say, 860-275-7266, We're talking about what happens when there isn't scientific consensus uh, about whether a particular disease exists. 860-275-7266. You may tweet us, and I believe our tweet master is back in the house. We thought we didn't have him today. Greg Hill's with us. You can tweet at us at WNPR Colin on Twitter. With me, uh, Gary Greenberg. He's in the studio. He's a psychotherapist. His most recent book is The Book of Woe. Uh, Baron Lerner is a professor of medicine and population health at NYU uh, and a medical historian. And his um, most recent, well, one of his books anyway, is The Good Doctor, A Father, a Son, and the Evolution of Medical Ethics. So, um, Baron Lerner, let me ask you a medical ethics question. So, so obviously what we want is as patients and probably as doctors is some kind of clear cut communication uh, about what's going on. Um, Are there some of these diseases that we're talking about, whether it's chronic fatigue, whether it's fibromyalgia, whether it's uh, chronic Lyme, uh, some of the other stuff where really the doctor's job is to say, I don't really know what you have or or and, and there isn't really even a scientific consensus about whether what you might have exists i mean how optimally would that conversation go um i have that conversation a lot um i think that with some of these patients there's a lot of frustration on both sides um patients come in they feel terrible they want answers uh, I usually do a series of tests or they've already had the tests elsewhere. Sometimes, very often, there's nothing definitive that we find and we're at an impasse. And I, I will, I'm very comfortable saying, I don't know what you have uh, to, to a lot of these folks and try to redirect the discussion uh, in ways to think about 
indirectly helping them. So I, I shift over at some point to various more general interventions that might help someone with their sorts of symptoms, whether it's physical therapy or chiropractic or uh, an SSRI, an antidepressant, uh, and trying to sort of remove a bit of the fixation on the need for a diagnosis, because I think we all can get bogged down there. And ironically, uh, if there's no diagnosis, I'm not going to say it's any less real, but uh, ironically, the patients who insist on a diagnosis uh, are playing into a scenario where it's not going to be real to them unless they get a diagnosis. And I'm actually find myself pushing against that at times. Gary, I would, I would respond to that. So, so I think that one of the things that's going on there, especially with Barron's last comment, is that one of the compelling aspects of the disease the folk understanding of disease as a, as a kind of suffering that has a biological cause is that it takes human agency out of the picture. And so when people are suffering, they sometimes want to believe that it's not their fault. And if you provide a diagnosis, in, in especially in a medical language, you're saying, no, it's not in the mind, it's in the body. Conversely, if you can't say that, then it's as if you're saying it's in the mind. And that, of course, people really don't like because it makes them feel guilty, it makes them feel responsible, and it may make them also feel hopeless because if my mind did this to me, how am I going to get it undone? So I think that you know we're dealing with a fundamental uh, problem that we all face, which is that we've got a, we live in a dualistic world of, of the mind and the body, and nobody really understands how that goes together. When people get confused about these things and, as Barron says, want this kind of um, – diagnosis as reassurance, they really just want to be let off the hook. Um, the, the other different, the other sort of um, instance of this kind of thing is disagreement about how a disease behaves. And obviously, uh, the battleground for that is chronic Lyme. And Gary, I'm going to stay with you uh, on this for a second. So um, the scenario on chronic Lyme is that there are a lot of people who have sort of post-treatment symptoms, that they go through 30 days or whatever of antibiotic treatment. Um, the borealis spirochete is no longer evident uh, anywhere in their body, but they have a whole bunch of symptoms. Um, and, and the symptoms, the list of possible symptoms is long as your arm and probably affects your arm at times. Uh, and um, and the bulk of the medical establishment and the medical it doesn't speak as one. It doesn't speak monolithically. But the bulk of it sort of says, well, you know, you don't really have anything that we can treat now. We did this whole thing. We, this is how we think the disease works. You get this spirochete. We wipe it out with antibiotics. You go on with your life. I don't know what to tell you if you're still having symptoms. So one of the things that does, I mean, it can do a lot of the things that you talked about. It, it's a message almost like, well, maybe this is in your head. But the other thing it does is push people away from the medical establishment, right? People start getting all going after other kinds of cures, other kinds of treatments, uh, and then are also in the trap about, well, I know I'm feeling better. Was that a placebo effect? Um, so, I mean, it seems to me that's sort of another rabbit hole that we go down if, in fact, the establishment answers aren't acceptable to us. Yeah, I would actually go to a different animal and call it a tick-infested rat's nest okay. uh, because really with something like Lyme, you see the, ide the ideology breaks through. And, you, ha you know, you, you are faced with a choice about seeing a doctor who believes this or a doctor who believes that because there are plenty of physicians out there that will treat what they consider to be chronic Lyme. Um, the problem the problem there is that in the absence of consensus, that's when it becomes really uh, uh, tempting 
to um, take matters into your own hands, which in one, some ways is good. But when it, you're talking about taking antibiotics for a year or two years, um, that may be something that for many different reasons is a poor idea and really reflects the desperation of people to feel better rather than reflecting any kind of reality about the disease. I mean, Baron Lerner, that would be my reaction to a lot of the scenarios we're talking about right now, whether it's fibromyalgia or Morgellons or chronic Lyme or whatever. If I went to the doctor and the doctor either A, told me, well, I don't really believe that ex- the disease exists, or the doctor gave me whatever he considered to be treatment uh, and I didn't feel better and the doctor wasn't willing to do anything else, uh, I would start looking for alternative therapies, which you know may not be as well vetted as some of the uh, strict medical model therapies, but I would start, I, I mean, isn't that kind of a natural response anyway? Say, all right, I, screw you guys. Uh, I'll go to California and see a naturopath. Yeah, I I think so. And I, I don't necessarily discourage that. Um, I, I always give a caveat. I, I, I mean, think about uh, how much time an internist like me thinks about chronic Lyme and reads about chronic Lyme versus a sufferer who has been running a website about it for years and spends a lot of their time doing this. They know a lot more about it than I do. And so I I don't necessarily discourage people from accessing that sort of information. I do give them the appropriate caveat, which is to say there's a lot of information out there, some of which is not going to be very accurate, and be very careful what you decide to do with that information. But I, I think it would be wrong to assert that I or other orthodox medical doctors necessarily have the final word on ambiguous conditions like this. All right. We've got a call uh, coming in here from Dr. Alan Druitt, I think it is, in uh, Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, Hi. You're on the air. All right. Thank you. My name is Dr. Alan Gerwitt. Most of my life was practicing in Connecticut, and I'm now in the Boston area. Um, In regards to what has been called chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, there's uh, there are mysteries about it, but there are many of the mysteries that have been cleared up. A recent report from the Institute of Medicine and then another report from NIH have both concluded that it's a real biological disease, and they use the word disease purposely. Uh, that it has uh, been around for at least several decades. That uh, it was first described in London, in England, and then there were epidemic outbreaks in this country, which led the CDC to begin to investigate. For decades, at least three decades, uh, the uh, illness has been tainted by uh, the belief that it's of psychological origin. It's not at all true. It is not true now, and it never has been the case. Can I, can I ask you a question about that? How yes. do you know that? Uh, in other words, we are moments away. We're going to be having Ellen Clayton, uh, one of the leaders of that Institute of Medicine uh, study that you, you cited. Um, yes. I'm, um, I'm a retired physician. Yeah. I've been studying this for 26 years. I'm the medical advisor for the Massachusetts CFID Association. Uh, I'm one of the authors of an international primer. Okay, but I, I'm going to just stop you now. I, didn't, I asked you, how do you know this, not who are you? So, I mean, when I say how do you know this, I mean, th- my understanding of chronic f- fatigue syndrome is that medical science doesn't know what causes it or how to treat it. So, nonsense. Nonsense? So what, yes, what causes absolutely it? absolutely nonsense. What causes it? 
Uh, probably viruses. It's mm. not been absolutely pinpointed, but most of the research indicates viral uh, infection. We know in children that uh, about 60% have had uh, chronic mono or infectious mono uh, at least within the past six uh, months. Those uh, studies come out of Australia, and there's a specific uh, virus implied. It's not been found uh, in adults yet. All right. Well, as I say, we're going to um, have uh, Ellen Clayton on in just a second, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. Although, uh, with the guy, I'm going to say with the guest that I have here right now, um, Gary Greenberg, um, it, it's once again does seem to me that even in his answers to the questions, I mean, probably virus. Um, right. And, and not only that, but probably virus that happened a while ago. Mm. You know, the uh, IOM report, which I know we'll talk about, talks about the possibility that Epstein-Barr virus is what kindles it. But that hardly explains why people feel the way they do. There's also, by the way, a theory out there about what's called nociception, having to do with uh, the central nervous system's uh, method of processing pain um, and an idea that pain signaling sort of gets stuck on. But neither of these is really a satisfactory explanation because it's not giving you a mechanism and it's not giving you a way to explain why one person exposed to Epstein-Barr, if indeed that's the problem, um, gets CFS and another one doesn't. So I think we're a long way, and the Institute of Medicine report acknowledges it up front from, um, from that biological explanation. Yeah, I mean, it's once again, Baron Lerner, it seems to me that uh, listening to that description, it, it does seem more like, okay, we, we really can see that there's something and, and there's something very powerful about giving that thing a name. And, and chronic fatigue syndrome, as we will hear in the next segment, has a new name anyway. But you give that thing a name and then you hope that or you believe that research uh, will sort of begin to fill in some of the gaps in our understanding of it. To me, that seems closer to what's happening here than what the doctor from Newton said, which is we know exactly what this is. Uh, there's no real doubt about it. Yeah, it's an incremental process. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, I mean, we'll hear more about the IOM report, but it was, you know, my guess is, I wasn't in the room discussing it, but, uh, you know, my guess is everyone in that room didn't merely look at the new biology and say, okay, this is a disease. My guess is there was some argument and discussion and people felt that it was time to legitimate this longstanding uh, syndrome with the new name of a disease because it was enough uh, biology. Now, of course, one of the interesting things is once you start to call it a disease, uh, that in turn serves to rationalize the notion of it being a disease. So, so it's not, uh, it's a two-way street. All right. We're going to take a quick break. This is a really interesting discussion. We're going to come back with more, and we will come back with Ellen Clayton from the IOM. So, you know, most of us, one thing I always think about is most of us don't access the medical system. Uh, we don't access health care. We go to our doctors. Uh, and when I go to my doctor, Jack, 
He doesn't use a last name. You know, I mean, I tell him what my symptoms are, and he tells me what he thinks is wrong with me and tries to figure out uh, how to fix me. Um, what ha- from, I've been fortunate enough not to have the experience of going to Jack with a whole bunch of symptoms and, and maybe even a belief that I have a particular thing, and Jack telling me, well, we don't even really know if that exists or not, uh, and there's nothing I can do for you. But a lot that for a lot of people, that's the reality, right? They, they actually they have symptoms. They believe those symptoms coalesce around a particular thing. They've been told by other people that that's the case. Um, uh, maybe they've been to a bunch of doctors who just wouldn't even acknowledge that there's any possibility that they have a disease. And then they find out, wow, there's a lot of other people who have this thing, and here's the name of it. And that's kind of what we're talking about today and, and how that thing with a name gets to be agreed upon as a disease by the medical establishment. So joining this conversation, we've been talking to Gary Greenberg and uh, Baron Lerner. They're both still with us. Uh, we're going to add Ellen Clayton, professor of pediatrics and law, co-founder of the Center uh, for Biomedical Ethic- Ethics and Society at Vanderbilt University. Uh, you just heard uh, a reference to the Institute of Medicine's uh, most recent statement uh, on, it's probably more than an actual statement, uh, on chronic fatigue syndrome, which also has a, a new name now, systemic exertion intolerance disease. Uh, so uh, she's kind enough to spend some time with us and, and talk about how that gets arrived at. So first of all, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be on the show. And and it sounds like you've had a chance to be sort of present at the dawning of, of an attempt to arrive at, at one of these consensuses, one of these understandings. There's a thing, and people have been calling it chronic fatigue syndrome for a long time, but there isn't really a common understanding about what causes it or how to treat it. So um, I'm not even sure I quite understand, I understand what the IOM, the Institute of Medicine, is. Maybe you should begin by saying what that is and how dispositive its decisions actually are? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, The IOM is part of the National Academy of Sciences, and the National Academy of Sciences was founded during the Civil War to provide um, objective advice on science to the nation. So um, we are a freestanding entity that advises the government about science. Um, The IOM is a more recent branch of that, but is a very important branch. Um, We were asked by a variety of agencies in Health and Human Services to um, to address a very specific task, to uh, talk about um, what to come up with diagnostic criteria for this disorder, uh, to talk about how this should be updated as time goes on, uh, to consider the um, the the usefulness of the current names, of which there are actually many, not only chronic fatigue syndrome, but also myalgic encephalomyelitis, and then also how we would um, uh, get this news out to clinicians. Um, So we, you know, we had a very specific task. Uh, The major part of the task, obviously, was coming up with the diagnostic criteria, which we did in two ways. One of them was that we did a comprehensive review of the literature about about this disease, how it's described, what its symptoms are, et cetera, going back decades, actually. And, um, and then we also uh, very clearly listened to the views of patients and advocates. We, got, we not only took direct testimony, but we also got more than a, almost 1,000 comments from patients and advocates about this disease that we, um, you know, that we looked at very seriously and took into account. Um, what we found as we looked through the literature, was that there were a very clear uh, cluster of symptoms that um, that characterized this disease, and these became our diagnostic criteria. 
they have many other symptoms as well, but the core symptoms are this um, profound fatigue that's long-lasting that really gets in the way of the ability to work, um, post-exertional malaise, which is the inability to bounce back from any kind of exertion, um, the uh, uh, the issues of sleep disturbances, which people universally complained of, um, and, as well as either um, cognitive problems, a major complaint people talk about is what they call brain fog, but just, you know, the inability to think in a way that they uh, think they can, um, as well as orthostatic intolerance, which is the ability inability to stand up or sit up for prolonged periods of time without losing your blood pressure and falling down. As I said, there are many other symptoms that go along with this, but these core symptoms taken together um, really define the essence of this disorder. Um, one thing that we found in terms of looking at this, we obviously looked at um, the, all the, you know, the basic science, which um, I think, as we've already heard, is fairly nascent in this disorder. Um, and um, in many cases, except for the role of Epstein-Barr virus in kids. Um, but there were also clear um, physiologic measures that we could, you know, that, that we could uh, demonstrate um, uh, using things like tilt, te tilt testing, cognitive testing, and, um, and, the, and the exercise testing. So it was a combination of looking at the literature about what's been demonstrated, looking at, you know, what, um, at, at things that, that have been shown in many, many patients to be um, a demonstrable um, using objective tests, and then, um, and then listening ultimately to uh, the views of patients. Um, the issue about the name, I think, has become... Um, uh, has become a bit of an issue. We heard a lot about people saying um, that chronic fatigue didn't serve them well. I'm pretty clear that's true. Um, I heard lots of people for a long time asking me if this was a real disease, um, et cetera. Um, I hope we've dispelled that. A lot of enthusiasm for myalgic encephalomyelitis, which uh, we thought was not appropriate because it didn't describe what the disease is. Um, and in the absence of knowing etiology, uh, 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 when it came to examining the etiology, uh, we don't know that yet. So what you do in the absence of that is you describe symptoms. So I guess I'm also wondering, though, in terms of um, nosology or in terms of classification, is this a paradigm change? In other words, earlier in the show, Dr. Lerner was talking about pneumonia. You know, pneumonia isn't something that we've come to understand through some kind of consensus of interviewing people about their symptoms. And in other words, there's you can test for pneumonia and you know what drugs treat pneumonia. And, and it doesn't seem as though uh, this disease is a disease the way that pneumonia is a disease. Or, or maybe you, you would differ with that. Oh, I strongly differ from that. Yeah. I mean... I think that this um, has a real. Um, I think this has a real physiologic basis, um, and uh, and if anybody thinks that we didn't think that, um, uh, I I would be sorely dismayed. Well, I guess maybe uh, maybe I phrased the question wrong, and what I'm also going to do because it's. Nothing could be worse than having the dumbest person here ask all the questions, and that's me. Uh, I'm going to give Gary and, and uh, Baron Lerner a chance to, each to ask you a question. But um, 
with pneumonia, we know what causes pneumonia, and we know how to treat pneumonia. Do we know what causes um, systemic intolerance? Uh, I just, I'm saying it wrong, but do we know what causes this disease, and do we know how to treat it? Um, I think both of those are in the process of development, which is actually pretty common. Um, I mean, we named HIV before we knew what the drug, before we knew what the virus was, and before we knew how to treat it. So this idea of naming, of identifying a disorder um, before we know what the etiology is or what the treatment is, is something we do frequently in medicine. Um, so, I mean, we now know a lot about pneumonia, but we certainly don't know everything about pneumonia, and we certainly know its etiology in some cases, but not all. So um, I think the idea that we can't identify a disorder until we know what causes it and how to treat it um, uh, actually defies the history of medicine. Um, Barry Lerner, without making you say what I want you to ask about it, I'd just be interested in, to know whether you have a question or a comment for Ellen Clayton about this process. Well, I guess I, I'm curious um, about uh, something I mentioned before, which was the discussion around the table. And, um, you know, how do you uh, – what was going on in the room in a sense? Uh, was this uh, everyone around the table thought it was a disease and it, it deserved that designation? Or was that a consensus view? You know, I guess it, it just gets to um, – a larger question about the political nature of a process like this, which I think to, to some degree is inevitable in, in the world of, of science. Uh, at, at some point, do we think there's enough information that it's time to call it a disease as opposed to we've discovered enough to prove it's a disease? A great question. Uh, Ellen Clayton, you want to respond well, to that? I think we've proved it's a disease. But um, but the way this this, like – like IOM committees usually work, um, we uh, discuss the data and, and uh, as I would say, wrestled with the data um, until we came to a consensus. This, this report is a unanimous view of the committee. Um, and the way that the, the actual magic of IOM committees is that we get people with broadly divergent skills together in the room um, and we work together on a problem until we can come to consensus. And that requires a process of learning to talk with each other and, um, and you know, and, and sort of coming to agreement about what's at stake. But, uh, but that's, I mean, that's how this goes. And, and I do want to reiterate, everybody in the room agreed with this report. Um, Gary Greenberg, I'd be interested to hear your question or comment. So my question would be, um, when you say that you proved that it's a disease, what exactly new knowledge did you discover or generate that proves it? I guess what I'm curious about is what you mean by prove in that uh, statement. Um, you know, the truth is that might be a little bit strong, but I think if you look at the weight of the evidence as we analyzed it, I don't think there's much room for denying that this is a disease. Well, I, I guess my, my point here is that it, when, I, when I say that, I'm not suggesting that you've overstepped by saying it's real. I think that the – I read the IOM report, and I think it's really quite brilliant. It does a beautiful job of confirming the reality of a condition in the absence of biological uh, – for the most part, of biological findings – and I think that that's not the first time that's been done. I mean, we have a book called the DSM, which is, uh, you know, 
500 pages of that. But uh, it certainly is uh, the case that what you've done here, I don't think you've proved it. I think what you've done is you've, you've uh, created a, a very nice uh, um, a c- a compendium of the information about it in, in a systematic way that says we need to look at this as a discrete form of suffering that many people are experiencing. I suppose it's possible that down the road, uh, this disease um, turns out to be, uh, you know, there are many pathways to get to it, many biological pathways, or that we're seeing two overlapping diseases, as happened in the 19th century with syphilis, uh, which was thought of as three diseases until the spirochete was discovered. I, I wonder if that seems like a possibility to you. Um, I think that's a very helpful approach. I think that, um, let me be really clear here. This, you know, we made a, a, a report that was focused on a moment in time, um, actually moment in time that ended last year when we finished our analysis. Um, I am very excited about the fact that there is new science coming out. I, it is my fervent hope that we'll be devoting more resources to doing um, research in this area. And that, uh, and I think that, you know, the likelihood, as is true in virtually all of medicine, cancer isn't one disease, and I suspect this probably isn't either. All right. Um, Ellen Clayton, thank you so much for joining us right now. Um, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with more of this conversation. probably the wrong time for me to bring up my restless pants syndrome. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Anna Novak. Katie Talarski is our executive producer, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Woody Allen. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff in search of a cure for chronic truffle sensitivity, visit our website, wnpr.org. Tomorrow, a show about rust. And now... Back to Colin. Rust is the natural disaster that costs the uh, U.S. the most money. Um, it costs $500 billion a year just to deal with what rust actually is. Uh, but we're also going to talk about how rust can be beautiful. We'll talk to an artist who works in rust. So that's our show tomorrow. Right now we're talking about um, what happens when medical science doesn't have a complete consensus about what a disease is or whether it even exists or not. Our guest uh, in studio, Gary Greenberg, a psychotherapist in Connecticut. He's joined us for other topics, and uh, his most recent book is The Book of Woe. Uh, Baron Lerner, a professor of medicine and population health at NYU, uh, a medical historian and the author of The Good Doctor, a father, a son, and the evolution of medical ethics. Well, Dr. Baron Lerner, this uh, topic is not uh, a mere abstraction for you, not only because you treat patients and have these kinds of conversations with with patients with some regularity, but because it's in your own life. You've written about this in the New York Times and possibly elsewhere. Uh, You, in fact, experienced something called misophonia. Tell us about misophonia. And we're missing him right now. All right. Uh, I, we may have just dropped the ISDN. We'll try to uh, reestablish contact. Either that or his misophonia has interfered with his hearing the question, but I don't think that's true. Are you there, uh, Baron Lerner? Nope. Okay. So, um, How about now? Ah, now you're here. Uh, back so now? You're back. You're back. Excellent. Okay. So mm-hmm. tell, tell us about misophonia. 
So misophonia is a condition that has named, been named for about 12 years or so, which involves selective sound sensitivity. So basically what it means, the people who have this syndrome, there are certain types of sounds that they find incredibly irritating that causes many of us to get very frustrated and angry. Uh, and one of the uh, characteristics of this is that other people in the room or other people around don't experience this at all, and there's a small segment of the population who is f- furious at the irritation that these particular noises bring. So uh, uh, just to sort of go to some of the questions we were asking about chronic fatigue, do we know what causes it, and do we know how to treat it? No and no. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's newer than chronic fatigue, so there may be, we, have, we have some time there. Um, there's some speculation that it has to do with the connections in the brain, the limbic system that go to the auditory system. Um, there's certain things that those of us who have it can do, mostly at this point, some type of behavioral modification that can help alleviate the symptoms. But, yeah, we're in a very early stage here. And indeed, you know, there's certainly a segment of the population reading about this that's probably rolling their eyes saying that these people are a bunch of complainers and this doesn't exist at all. Could I, could I ask a question? Sure, yeah. Uh, Baron, I'm, I'm curious about um, uh, the connection between the triggers for misophonia and the triggers for ASMR. Are you familiar with this uh, question? No, not. Uh, Do you know actually. what ASMR is? A little, but okay. I don't. Could, I don't mean to put yeah. you on the spot. There, no, no, it's okay. It, 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 it's you know this. Some some of the triggers for misophonia are the same triggers. The sounds, mouth popping, um, mm-hmm. popcorn chewing, crinkling papers, and so on. That other people uh, suggest trigger their uh, what they call eargasms. Uh, a, a tremendously high state of arousal that they uh, enjoy sufficiently to uh, spend hours on YouTube listening to them. And um, I wondered – I clearly hadn't heard about this or thought about it, but I wonder if you could maybe comment on the overlap there. Yeah, I, I uh, it's interesting to hear that. I mean I've heard of the condition, but I hadn't heard of the two of them being associated. It, it, the notion of any sort of pleasure coming from these <laughs> things is interesting. But, but I will tell you – um, that I'm not surprised to hear that particular sounds generate very specific reactions from a small percentage of the population, even if they're a different type of reaction. I, I mean, it, to me, it seems very biologic and physiologic. I don't go looking for this. I don't try to find these noises so I can roll my eyes and be irritated. In fact, I try to distract myself, but when one of them jumps out at me, there it goes, and I hear it. Now, did you... Did you uh... I think I remember reading in the Times that you experienced this for a while before the term misophonia came along for you. Is that do I have that wrong? Is that correct? No, that's true. Uh, I, I actually sort of stumbled across it. I, I mean, I dealt with it for years and years, and tried to do what I could about it. And once in a while, would talk to people about it. But in general, I didn't go searching for a name. And then uh, a couple years ago, I sort of stumbled across it on the internet. And I remember I was sitting at the computer. My wife was sitting behind me at the kitchen table, since she's the victim of my complaints all the time. And I was like, oh, my God, there's there's a name for this. So I was actually pretty excited. I mean, and I would imagine that's the reaction of a lot of people. In other words, people who, who have this or who have, have symptoms this extreme are probably somewhat overjoyed. I mean, nobody's overjoyed to have it, but overjoyed to hear that they're not crazy, that there's a name for this. But what is your response to people who say, 
Well, yeah, no, I got that too. It's my ex-wife's voice drives me crazy, but I don't think that I have a disease. Uh, I mean, or, or yeah, that's exactly how I get when I hear Rush Limbaugh. Um, in other words, I mean, I'm sure there is, there are a lot of people who think, yeah, you've just made up a disease name for a fairly exaggerated reaction that you're having to auditory stimuli that, you know, basically most people can kind of identify with. Well, I think we fall back on the sort of things we were talking about earlier with these other conditions, which is uh, there's a consistency among the particular types of noises that bother these folks. Um, And uh, the the studies that are beginning to be done suggest that not only are the symptoms consistent, but the types of behaviors that you can do to avoid it uh, are, are particular and can be helpful. And you start to build, again, one of, I think, one of these consensus understandings that this isn't just a a small number of people or individual people getting irritated about something and calling it a disease, but really a group of people who's suffering from something very specific who are gathering together on the Internet and in meetings and trying to come up and encourage people to study it from a scientific basis. So with 60 seconds left, Gary uh, Greenberg, I mean, this conversation that you guys are having right now makes me realize there's a couple of ways to understand the whole purpose of medicine, right? One is to achieve a, a, re- a hard scientific understanding uh, of everything that happens to people. And the other one is to do what he's saying, identify symptoms that people have, things that may p- make them suffer, and begin any way to, to try to help them address that one way or another, either through avoidance uh, of triggers or th- th- maybe that's what medicine is. It's just trying to help people any way you well, can. Well, especially when you're talking about the disease model, because as I said earlier, the disease is the key to opening up all of those resources, which isn't just money and drugs. It's also compassion, sympathy, understanding, um, accommodation, and uh, obviously the ability for people to communicate with one another and help one another, whether they're physicians helping each other or physicians helping patients or patients helping each other. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, a special, special thanks to uh, Dr. Barry Lerner and uh, Gary Greenberg. Uh, and special, 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 special thanks to Betsy Kaplan for pulling this whole thing together. It took us a few tries to figure out what this show was. I think it's been a really interesting conversation and probably the beginning of a couple more conversations very much like it. You can email me if we didn't get to your question at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Tucker, I'm afraid we have some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that you have a new disease, and it's going to become more and more cumbersome to manage. Dear God, what's the good news? We're naming it after you. 